Growth Pains. Hi everyone, welcome to this new episode of Growth Pains. Today we're going to be talking about topics such as being overwhelmed by taking on too much at the same time, how much honesty or directness is too much when it comes to work, managing a side business when you have to rely on freelancers as well, and making the move into a different role. My guest today and I met at a conference in Italy about two years or so. He works full-time as a growth product manager at HubSpot in the Cambridge or, or Boston. I'm not sure where the office is. And he used to work as a senior growth manager there, but also runs a side business, which is kind of an agency called Omniscient, which uh, you guys do content marketing, creating it as a growth channel for, for, for other businesses. And you will also release soon a in-depth course about content marketing. So you're pretty busy. Welcome, David Lee Kim. How are you doing, man? Thanks for having me. I, uh, I'm keeping busy, as you said, but I'm glad to be here and thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, I chased you around, <coughs> but uh, I got to you eventually on all your busyness. So man, let me first get started with like a little bit of like the true or false game we do here. Uh, so you have to just tell me true or false and just go with a quick, quick answer about it. It's probably going to be that easy to go true or false, but I'll, I'm going to push you in that direction. So the first one is, Getting into a unicorn tech company in your early 20s is living the dream. Big money, big fun, and a great work-life balance. True or false? I'm going to say false. Um, <laughs> and the, the, the answer really depends on how you define fun. I mean, when I joined HubSpot, I, I was working, let's say a lot, because I was interested. I felt like I needed to prove myself. I had a lot of energy. Um, I was single. You know, I didn't have any other things to worry about so i threw myself into the work so it was, it was really fun for me yeah. um which came with its sacrifices but if if that is what people want then i'd say true it's it's not for everyone though yeah yeah you have to get ready to do the work as well right the next one uh good personal branding and putting yourself out there is key to being successful in our line of work true or false i i would say true a million times um, yeah one of one of the folks I look up to and sort of have as a mentor is Brian Balfour. And one of the things he said is having a blog where he shares his learnings and how he thinks about things has been one of the biggest uh, sales parts of his career. Yeah. I, whenever I apply for uh, a company or want to advise a company, they're going to look at my website and see what I've done, why I'm worth working with and bringing on to help them. So I'd say if, if you're looking to grow your career, one of the best ways to do it is have, have some of online presence and have a portfolio of work and how you're thinking about things. All right. So let me, let me uh, piggyback on that one on a follow-up, true and false. So you work on your personal branding because you truly enjoy it, not because you feel it's a must. True or false? It started off as false and became true. Yeah. So the... In the beginning, it was very strategic in the sense of there's a way I want to present myself and what I'm working on. And I know that that'll help me get opportunities in the future and let me network with folks who I want to chat with and learn from. And over time, it became, oh, this is fun. This Now it's not using it directly for wanting to do stuff for my career, but it's I like fixing my website every now and then. I can spend hours redesigning it and, and stuff. And... Now it's a way of connecting with people versus thinking about my career. It's, hey, here's, here's who I am. If you think yeah. we could have an interesting conversation, let's chat. 
I think what's tricky about that and, and what the part kind of I might not like too much, it's consistency, right? That you know that consistency is important. On the other hand, you go kind of like ah, on a roller coaster on this one and you go like there's weeks where you just don't want to say anything, right? Like you have nothing to say and then you're like, oh man, I should post with a certain tempo or whatever. So that's, I guess oh that's God, also that's, something we all struggle with, right? That's one of the biggest points. I hate saying it this way, but it's one of the biggest points of guilt for myself because I know I have all these drafts and I have all these ideas and frameworks yeah. I want to share and also just document. But you get busy and when I'm not working, I kind of just want to sit and watch some Netflix and watch The Last Dance and yeah, eat some ice cream, you know? Um, nothing wrong about that. And that's, that's, maybe we'll get into this later, but it's one of those things where I say, I want to publish four articles this month and I get none out. And then <laughs> next month I say, okay, let's get two out. I get none out. And I say, yeah. let's get one, let's get one out. I can do one, right? <laughs> And I might do a draft, but I don't publish it. And I'll say, okay, that's, I'll take it as a win. Self-doubt comes into play, right? You're like, is that exactly. good enough? You start it's showing it to there. people. And... Yeah. All right. The other one, uh, you truly feel like you are really good at your job. No doubt in your mind. True or false? Absolutely false. <laughs> you know, it's, it's crazy because, and I, I tell teammates this and previous managers, there's always a part of me that is working hard because I don't want to get fired. I'm scared that one day I'm going to get fired or my co-founder, my co-founder might tell me, hey, dude, you're not, you need to pick up yeah. some slack. <laughs> but that never happens. Um, dude, it's just an in internal fear. Story of my life, right? I, I, I think that's, that's for everybody. But I, I just put that one in there because I think it's really important for everybody to realize we all feel similarly, right? Like um, it's normal to feel like every moron could do your job, right? And, and you're like, yeah, why, why do people like... Feel like I do this so well. It's not that great. It's I yeah. think it's it's normal self doubt. And the last one, and this was content related because I know content is a passion of yours. So, most companies understand that it's not always possible to attribute direct revenue to content marketing, and they're okay with it. They still see the value. True or false? True. You feel like that's some, the case? Some aren't even thinking about attribution. Um, I think it's rare for a company to say. One, we need to do a content strategy that can drive revenue or something close to it. Some are just doing it to, to grow a vanity metric like traffic. And two, companies that are doing content may not be trying to set up the attribution to see which, well, which piece of the content are driving leads, which ones are driving revenue. Um, and then they end up you know, creating a bunch of content that doesn't actually really help the business. Um, and that's when I start talking to folks and I say, you know, we're driving traffic but we're not getting leads. We're not getting sales from it. What are we doing wrong? Right. And you know, it, it all starts from the strategy. But uh, I I do think that more more companies should be thinking that way. Yeah, absolutely. I I think well, you guys at Hopswood have also done like quite some work on that over the years, right? On like evangelizing people about the power of of content marketing, but. Yeah, well, I work in Europe and you work in the US, right? Maybe it's a, it's a bit of a different perspective. I still see a lot of like, hey, but what this which deals came out of this blog post sort of approach, right? And you're like, yeah, no, it doesn't work like that. Like it's, it's one of the several touch points that people go through uh, before talking to us. So, but yeah, I, I think you guys might be a little bit more, more used to that by now in the US. So it's really good to hear. Uh, okay, dude, so let's start with the question I ask everyone, which is if you'd have to name something at work, the biggest thing that comes to mind that you are really, really, really bad at, what would that be? So my days tend to be filled with meetings 
and I was really good at this before, but I've gotten horrible at it is <laughs> I'll take notes about every single meeting. Like when, when we were talking to coordinate this chat, I have a, a notion file on you and links to your <laughs> LinkedIn and everything. Right. Are you ever going to read it again though? Do you ever check them again after you take them? Oh yeah. I check them. Yeah. Yeah. I checked you it do? before this call. And the thing is I take notes about the meeting, but I don't follow up with the person. I just, I don't have time to summarize all my notes and make it look neat and send over to the person. Right. And, you know, as a product manager, sometimes it, it's helpful to do that because you might have talked about 10 different things in a 30 minute meeting and right. you might have five different action items. So those action items are in my head. They're on my to do list, but I haven't all, I don't always follow up, which um, maybe I shouldn't be admitting that. Um, yeah, but true, that but is like, something that, you know, you it, and it's, I it's tough both, to be on right? top of everything at once. Yeah. Yeah. But we, we all take more meetings than we should probably. Right. Like, but do you guys have a good culture about meetings in HubSpot in terms of like always coming off with something out of the meetings? Or do you also have those meetings where you come out and you go like, yep, that didn't go anywhere. I can't speak for the rest of the company, Yeah, but of course. I, I do that for my, I protect my calendar quite a bit. Um, right. If my immediate team of engineers or designers or anyone needs to talk about something, then I always make time for them. But if I get a random meeting on my calendar, I'll generally ask the person, hey, what, what would you hope to accomplish by the end of this meeting? And in yeah. some cases, we can resolve it with an email or a quick Slack conversation, right? So um, I, I like to be a little bit strict, and sometimes I come off as a hard ass for doing that. Um, but it, Yeah, we'll get to that one. Yeah, we'll get to that. <laughs> in the list, yeah. So... We have, so you sent me a few like of your pains like on email before this, right? Before the call, that's usually what I do with guests. And one of the ones to go in the first one right away, one of the first ones you mentioned was getting overwhelmed by taking on too much, right? And we touched briefly upon this at the beginning. So right now at work, you work as a full-time PM at HubSpot, you do public speaking gigs, you have a side business, you're creating a course, uh, you have a, personally, you have a relationship, you spend quite some time working out, uh, and you would love to learn about everything and out there and read every book that's been written by mankind, right? So which is really, really hard to fit into a schedule. So my question for you on that one is, how big do you think that peer pressure's role on you doing that is, right? How much of this is driven by like these LinkedIn rock stars and people telling you that you have to write a book by the time you're 35 and you have to be super successful? How much is, has that influenced that decision-making process of yours? I think at the root of it, I'd say right now, it's, I'm selective about the, pressure, the peer pressure. It's my co-founder and I peer pressure each other in terms of, you know, he'll say he writes eight blog posts a month. He'll write those eight blog posts a month. <laughs> um, but I'm selective about who I decide to look to to, to model my career afterward and, after and say, these are people that I aspire to be like in a couple years because you know they may be five or ten or you know 20 years older than me but in terms of doing a lot of things to show off on linkedin or instagram i don't post much on linkedin or instagram no. i'm not really concerned about that sort of validation but it's more of for the people that i'm working with how are we holding each other up to a higher standard and right. we individually have these goals of you know wanting to maybe have a beach house in barcelona or maybe be able to take care of our parents when they're retired. And we're thinking, is what we're doing now going to get us there? And if not, what more do we need to do? And what are the next steps to do that? And so right. with my co-founder, Alex, we had these conversations. We had these similar personal drives. And it's more of those 
internal drives for our personal lives that drive us to work harder in our professional lives and our entre entrepreneurship uh, ventures. Yeah. So it's it's less of the social, like open public pressure and more of the internal, no, no, no. you know, I want to do all these things. Okay, but like, okay, I know you, you don't put it a lot out there in, in those terms, right? But like, how about when you see people around you taking that route, right? Because also, you're 28, right? To put it in context. So you're 20 some, 28, am I right? Yeah, right. Yeah, so you're a really young guy, right? You have a, a lots of time, so you would feel like, hey, what's the rush, right? So I feel like a lot of that can be driven by, you know, people being 20-something, feeling like they're running out of time or like they should move quicker. And that's driven by seeing others move next to you quicker as well, right? So you would feel lazy if you were to say, nah, I'll just start my agency when I'm 35, which should be completely fine, right? It's like totally yep. doable. So I think a lot of that is also driven by, let's say, the market, right? Like the competition, like the other humans competing from, for success with you. Yeah, if you put it that way, I 100% I am pressured by that. Not yeah. in a sense of I need to do more, but wow, these, first, these people are doing... There's a... I forget, I forget how old she is now, but when I last saw an article about her, she was a 13-year-old a VC. Okay. Um, crazy. Those people make me feel like I'm a and, moron, like an absolute moron. Right. And to me, I, I used to take it as I need to do more, I need to do more. This person's only 13, this person's only 21. This person's 30 and has all these accolades. I'm almost 30. Um, I still think that every now and then. I, I it's used a new to, 20, man. It's a new 20. Yeah. I used to lose sleep over it, to be honest. Um, but now I'm, I'm at a much better place where I've accepted, you know, we each have our own unique paths and there's no right or wrong path. Maybe they had some different experiences in life that led to them kind of getting that far at 30 that maybe I didn't have. But what I'm doing, there's nothing really I can do to try to mimic that path. So the best thing I can do is keep doing me. Yeah, obviously, like you're a, you're a young guy working in one of the most successful tech companies in the world, right? Like uh, this is also an interesting topic for me because I don't know, I, I, my life developed differently. I started in a, in a different career and then I moved over to marketing like later on in my life. I also come from, from Latin America where where like careers are longer and people don't just really succeed that quickly. It's starting to be a thing, but it wasn't really a thing when I was younger. Um, but, you know, for our parents' generation, having a stable job was good enough, right? And if you happen to also love what you were doing, holy grail, right? Like that was the dream. Right now, you're a 28-year-old guy that was in the, one of the most successful companies in tech in the world. Like, do you inside feel like that wow like i already got to to a point where i feel comfortable anything else over this will just add on to that but i already kind of like got into this league or do you feel like you're nowhere even near inside when you crit over like criticize yourself i feel like you already know the answer to this i don't feel like i'm anywhere near where i want to be yeah which is bananas to me man because when i, when I was your age if i would have been working like in hubspot i would have been <laughs> head over heels i was wasting my time at the time but <laughs> wait how, how old are you if you don't 36 36 okay yeah yeah so, I, I don't know what you're talking about man i think i mean <laughs> we we were speaking at the same event and i forgot which one it was but i mean clearly you've done quite well for yourself yeah but you, you know what i and this this is really tricky because it was a thing when I moved to Amsterdam, right? Because when I was in Chile, um, I was always the young kid around. Like every work I did before, I was always like the younger kid. 
And then I moved to Amsterdam and I started working in tech companies. And all of a sudden I was Grandpa Nacho and I was like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> and it's, everybody's like, dude, like you're third. It's like, yeah, yeah, sure. Like, and, and that pressure, I, I, start, I did started to feel it, right? But what I think it's important, and this is what I wonder if you ever thought about this, I guess you have, is like, is there a certain milestone in your head, right? That you go like, when I get to this exact point, I will really feel like, okay, like if I die tomorrow, like uh, that was okay. Right? Like I got to where I wanted to be or where you think like time to chill. I don't have to write to have like three side hassles, do the public speaking, like I'm confident where I am. Have you thought about that place? No. <laughs> I, I've asked myself what this is all for. There's a yeah. good book called What Makes Sammy Run, which is ah. about that exact thing. And I don't have the end goal with me i do know that what an ideal life at the end of the day looks like for me is being able to take care of my parents when they're retired letting them hopefully retire early and yeah. in the future i'd like to have a family and kids and be able to spend time with them instead of working full-time so i i'd say if i had to give a milestone that that sounds like a nice milestone to me the financial um, I, freedom to make those decisions right exactly i'd like to just sit at home and be a stay-at-home dad and play with my kids you know yeah, um, that's that that is the dream. Also, I feel that, you know, a lot of the people listening to this are, in, are from European countries. Uh, I'm from Latin America, you're from North America. And we have similar systems in terms of the way the countries are run in terms of economy and so on. And um, that notion is a bit foreign for some European countries, right? You feel like your elderly will be taken care of. Uh, there's a lot of, of, of granted uh, things right that that in Am in the americas you don't really feel that you kind of feel that you have to that. yeah you have to stack a lot of money under that mattress right because when your grandparents need to pay for an elderly home that's going to be whatever it is 100k out of your pocket right uh, whatever it, because in the us it's even crazier right everything is yeah, times says a lot about our government systems doesn't it right <laughs> everything is like times 20 right so school is 100k and everything is like in the in the six digits right um, so I think that also puts things a bit in perspective, right? A lot of people here in Europe feel like, okay, I'm going to take a, a few years to travel. I'm going to do here and there. And they're not worried about like breaking that tempo of like getting your financial going and so on, because a lot of it is more granted for, for those essential things in life that us are fearful of like experiencing, right? Like having yeah. your parents lose their house when they're 70 plus. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to get... I don't know if you want to get political or anything, but I, I have. <laughs> you can go have wherever cousins. you're gonna go. Yeah, I have cousins in Montreal, Canada, and I remember them telling me, like, "Yeah, I walk around the street, and I'm not scared of getting hit by a car because I know I'm not gonna go bankrupt from the hospital bills." And I right. thought, "Oh my God, if I got hit by a car, I might, I might go bankrupt. I don't, I don't know how much that costs." Um, yeah. And you know, I, I do think that that having that sort of safety net built into the system so the citizens can kind of enjoy life yeah. and maybe not have to work so incredibly hard just to try try to take care of their family i know i'm in a fortunate fortunate position but i know a yeah. lot of folks are not and I, I feel very lucky but there are folks who are who are scrapping by with two three jobs how right? do you feel about the concept of like legacy Right, because I feel like like everybody today feel feel like they have to have a legacy, right? Like, I remember I don't know in my earlier years, like 
a legacy was for the Einsteins or the presidents or things like that. And now every citizen with a Twitter account feels like they need to leave a, le a legacy behind them, right? Is that something like you demand from yourself? Do you feel like you want my kids to pick up a David Lee Kim something from the library in 30 years from now? Is this something you think about? Um, I used to think about it more, but not really. There, there's another good book called The Billionaire Who Wasn't about this Irish-American businessman named Chuck Feeney. Mm. And he made over $10 billion over his life. I, I believe he's still alive, but he put $8 billion of that into a foundation and gave it all away. He yeah. didn't put his name on any buildings. The name probably doesn't ring a bell to you. Um, oh. It was just, hey, I don't need this much money I want, but I want to help make the world a better place. I yeah. do like the sense of leaving a mark, but it doesn't necessarily need to have my name or a statue of my face anywhere. Yeah. Just maybe leaving someone's, helping someone's life and making it a little bit better and leaving the world a little bit better than I, I entered it. Yeah, it's good to hear, man, because I... I feel a lot of people in their early 20s are, are like pretty much obsessed about like legacy and becoming the next big thing. I, I've been watching way more Hamilton than I'm proud to, uh, to admit. Because my <laughs> I wife, watched it three times. <laughs> my wife absolutely loves it. So we've been watching it in a loop since it came out like on, on TV, right? And there's this phrase on it where he says like, legacy it's like planting seeds in a garden you never get to see right or like we also have say have a saying in spanish like being the richest man in the cemetery right like there's this yeah th this there's things that people obsess about that you will not even get to enjoy after right like they're not really things that and yeah maybe they're not even worth it right and, and we dictate our lives for that to happen when it's something that we're not even going to get to see okay so that that's a, wrapping up to like the second topic that i thought was really interesting from what you sent me which is like directness and honesty and candor right for me being based here in the netherlands i'm no stranger to this because the dutch people are extremely direct right so but you told me in your email that sometimes you feel like having a direct approach can be perceived as i don't know dickish rude or whatever so what's your experience with this why, why is that a pain for you in your in your everyday work you mentioned the emails the calendar thing at the beginning but yeah i i it's tough to say if it's a culture thing at HubSpot, for instance. I know different people have different communication styles. Yeah. I think for me, I've, I've, I've evolved in a way where it started off as a bit more careful and a bit more friendly. And then I just realized that it ended up wasting a lot of people's time. And I had people do the same to me where sometimes I'll start a conversation. I'll ask, what are you hoping to get out of this conversation? Yeah. And that kind of jumps straight to the point. It, there's no need to go around a question. There's no need to try to coerce me into doing anything. Just, just be straightforward and it saves us. It could make a 30 minute meeting turn into a 10 minute meeting. Um, and then if, if the answer is a no, give a no. Don't try to weasel your way around just saying no because the other person's gonna have some hope and they're gonna try to talk to you again and ask for something when really it's a no. Yeah. And I, I did this thing where I created a personal user manual where it explains my, my preferred ways of communication, how I work, things uh, that irk me or things that I prefer to see and things okay. like that, which I think sets the expectation. The That's cool. other piece is, I think by setting that sort of relationship with each other, it makes it easier to just communicate the way really good friends are, you know, they don't lie to each other. They don't yeah. try to 
bullshit each other. They just, you know, hey, you're being a dick. Can you stop that? Or, hey, you're doing this. Can you stop that? Yeah, well, there's also an important distinction between being direct and being rude, right? I think that that line gets, like, you know, people cross it very often, right? It's definitely not the same thing. You can definitely say anything to somebody without, like, having a little bit of respect and, and like, consideration for their feelings, like, because we're all people. Um, do you feel like you struggle with that line? Do you feel like sometimes you might go in the rude direction or is that something that you're consciously trying to like, you know, drive yourself to not cross that line or is it something that you don't really care about? And I, I do try to walk that line sometimes and to be quite honest, sometimes I'm, I have a lot of things on my mind and yeah. I might bleed into the rude side of the communication yeah. and uh, I, there's no way I can even try to lie about that. Um, and usually I'll go to the person the next day and say, hey, sorry, I might have been a little too direct and even rude yesterday. Um, had a bit going on, but I apologize for that. And usually they say, I didn't even notice. Or no, I, I appreciate you just getting to the point. Um, but I think the challenge is different people have different communication styles. And if someone's not used to that direct style, it may be a shock to them. And usually if, if that is a style that you have or would like to develop, it's helpful to set that expectation with someone that if you're direct, it's not that you think they're silly or that you think their idea is silly or that you want to shut them down. It's more of you, you prefer to just be honest and direct rather than give a workaround fluffy answer. And usually so far I've gotten good feedback from that. And what about transparency, right? Because, we, I mean, it's, it's okay to say, hey, like, you know, we need to respect the time of this meeting. I need to get out of this. That's one kind of honesty. And the other kind is when you need to be really transparent with people about their performance, about their work, right? And you want to make it in a construct, constructive way. And, and, and no matter how much you do it, there's a lot of people that will take it harsh. Like, even, even if you jump around every hurdle and go like yeah listen like this really is not meant to some people will take it hardly as hard hard as well um and the other one is transparency in uncomfortable situations right you guys haven't probably experienced this in the time you've been in hubs but when you have to talk about financial problems in the business or when you have to talk about people that have to be like let go in the organization right i feel like there is a there is a very tricky line there because I like full transparency and I like communicating everything to my team. I like that when somebody leaves, we tell them exactly why they left. I like that they know what the financial situation of the business is, this kind of stuff. At the same time, if you take it a little bit more to the right, it can really backfire, right? Like if you mention something a little bit too much because some things need to stay in closed circles, like uh, whether it's for people to not freak out, whether it's for people to, get to, to remain focused, or, or because it, it, it compromises somebody else's uh, privacy as well that you share that. Um, what has been your experience uh, at HubSpot or even at your own business with this? Like, are you able to be fully transparent when it comes to these tough topics? Yeah, I, for, for my style, I'll say, for one of the things you brought up just now is, you know, you, we may not decide to share everything because some important fact of the business might cause someone to freak out or not focus. Yeah. And my style is generally, I'll tell my teammates, hey, this is the challenge that I'm working through on my end. You don't need to worry about this. Here's what I'm doing about it. But I want to let you know in case anything comes up that this is what's happening in the background. And so far, fortunately, my teammates tend to 
trust me and say, okay, thanks for letting me know. Um, I'll keep that in mind if anything does come up and let you know if I hear anything, yeah. but I won't think about it. And we, we have a similar relationship for feedback too. Um, we do quarterly feedback sessions, just 30 minutes. I ask, what are three things I can do better? What are three things you'd like for, your, for me to keep doing? Right. And I also let them know if, you're in, if you'd like me to, I can do the same for you. And usually, do you feel like people give you the whole thing or, or is oh, it yeah. very... The feedback yeah. I've gotten, definitely, it hurts. It, some of it does hurt and some of it are things that I had already thought about, but it's helpful to get validated that I need to work on as well rather than just being in my head and asking, should I fix this? Is this a problem? Is it not? Um, Has it at some point generated bad advice between you and coworkers, right? Because at some point you feel like, okay, cool, thanks, man. Thanks for the feedback. And something's sticks with you and you're like kind of holding a little grudge there like do you feel like at any point that happened to you like you were like ah oh, this guy uh no and i think it's it's a personality thing for me i i was an athlete growing up and yeah. i remember games where i would get completely i played badminton and i remember games where i would get completely destroyed by my team my teammate that i was playing against to, for practice or the other team Yeah. And my coach would just sit with me and ask, what did you do wrong? What should you have done differently? And then he'll say, here are the things I saw you did wrong that you should think about. And in the next set of the game, I would completely destroy them back. So yeah. I, I was, I've always been a type to seek this feedback and know that it'll be uncomfortable, but that's really the, the only way to improve. And I do that with my team. I do that with my managers. I do that with people that I mentor. And do, do you, that surprises them as well. Yeah, I was going to ask, do you manage people directly right now? Do you have direct reports or mostly like per project? I don't project? have direct reports. No, yeah. it's, it's more of working directly with engineers, designers, um, but they don't report to me. Yeah, exactly. Um, which I think is also a helpful part of not being scared of giving direct feedback. Um, for the business, I do work with a couple other people and we, we also just give feedback normally too. Yeah, and what, what's tricky is also that some people weaponize honesty, right? You feel like it's okay. Uh, you're like, well, I'm a direct person, so I can just say whatever the hell I want, right? And usually, I'm a fan of honesty, but when it has some constructive thing behind it, right? If you're just gonna say, yeah. hey, dude, you look really fat today. I just wanted to get that off my chest. Uh, but like, yeah, yeah, fuck you, right? I've like, been working it, out. I've been yeah, working out, okay? Exactly, right? <laughs> it's one of those things that doesn't add anything to anybody, right? But yeah. like, yeah, but I'm direct. That's the way I am. Like, yeah, yeah, cool for you, but uh, I don't know if you've seen this, this movie, The Invention of Lying uh, with Ricky Gervais. It's, uh, it's really old, but it's really good. Yeah, there's a reason we don't just go around saying to people exactly what we think, right? Because we think yeah. some pretty disturbing shit and we just don't go and spit it out, right? Yeah, I think that goes into another piece of personal development is you kind of learn the differentiation of when you're about to say something, pause for a second and ask, why do I want to say this? Is it yeah. just to sound smart? Is it to make the other person feel bad? Yep. Or is it just to say something because I've been quiet? Or will it actually add value to the conversation, whether it's a group meeting or a one-on-one? -on -one? And then based on that question, you can then decide whether or not it's worth saying. Exactly. There, there are lots of things I don't say. Um, And am I adding a solution, right? Exactly. Because yeah. sometimes you're like, well, I feel like that's not really good. But then if you have nothing else to do about it, then you might as well not say it, right? Like you need to say, okay, I would improve this in the following way. Might not be taken or something, but you need to like provide 
a solution and then it's like yeah that's crappy onboarding yeah yeah what will you do about it right you need to add something to the discussion as well yeah one of, one of the things i found helpful is you know not even just saying hey here's here's a way to fix it or here's a better idea it's here's how i would think about it i don't know if it's right or wrong but maybe it'll give you some more ideas yeah and maybe it's an onboarding flow and i as they're explaining i pick it apart and at the end i say here here's what i heard and what i think is really awesome about this here's how, how i would think about it and maybe yeah. that'll be helpful for them it's those um, little things right just yeah. adding the how i think about it you're removing yeah. completely the cockiness out of like this is how you do it yeah. right of like i'm right and you're wrong you completely remove yeah. that and be like hey humbly this would be the way i would do it yeah yeah it's just different it's not better or worse it's just different in terms of your side business right also one of the things you mentioned was like First of all, you have a current team of six, if I'm, if I'm correct, right? But do all of these other guys also have full-time jobs or are people working, some of them, full-time on the business? So our team is four, actually. Okay. And three of us have full-time jobs and the fourth is an intern. So she's also part-time. Um, so we're a small but mighty core team. And then we work with a couple of contractors, mostly friends um, and connections that we know as well. Okay, so, and you mentioned that one of the issues was also relying on on, well, do you guys also use freelancers on the side next to this? Yeah. Right. So first of all, the question is, what type of work do you guys keep in house and what type of work do you outsource, right? Because I see that you guys do strategy, but you also do content production. And I feel like content production could be a bit easier to, to outsource, but what's your, uh, what's your take on that one? Yeah. So the things that we do internally are all the strategy um, and working with the client. We don't outsource client management that I think that would be silly but I think there's a stigma around outsourcing content production um, right. some clients might say why would I work through you if I can just hire a contractor myself and there's a lot packaged in that question because one they need to go find a freelancers and then they need to manage those let's say five freelancers and pay each of them separately and they also need to edit their content and review and then they also need to communicate and check in with them regularly. That's a lot of time meetings, feedback sessions, managing. Whereas for us, when, when we outsource our content, it's not to some random person in the Philippines or India. Um, granted, there are also amazing writers in those countries that people also don't realize yeah. that we've, we have worked with on side personal projects. But when we bring freelancers on, it's because with all the different types of clients we have, we can't. It doesn't make sense to have full-time writers for every vertical in-house and paying salary and benefits for every single person, right? So what we do is we source contractors who know the material really well and are, have journal, journalist backgrounds and can interview the client's founders and learn more about the business and the industry, turn that into really, really good content and follow the content strategy we set out so that that content, sure, they might have been able to outsource it on their own if they wanted yeah. to, but it would have required a lot of work. But since they brought us to do it, we manage the strategy, we collaborate with them on it, and then we bring high quality writers to produce that content with the thinking of SEO and high quality content that's difficult to copy as and well. What, what do you guys struggle with the most when it comes to that model, right? Like, is it, is it the fact that you have to delegate this important function? Is it, is it coordinating people in different time zones? What's the biggest pain in that model you guys have for the side business? 
as with any small business, it's all the different things you could be doing. You know, we're, we're working on a content strategy course as well. Some, some prospects yeah. can't afford our services, so we want to provide a low-cost, self-educational product for them to kind of learn our methodology. We're going to be working on a podcast later this year. We need to work on our own content marketing and bring on some more on our internal team, which we're very fortunate about. It's, it's a lot of moving pieces. Um, one piece that comes up regularly is clients don't like having to go through multiple uh, intermediaries, right? Usually with an agency, you have your contractors who talk to the agency, who talk to the client, yeah. and then they talk to their internal stakeholders, and then it goes back and forth through the chain. We have our, our writers just talk directly to the client and schedule meetings with them as needed. We don't, we're, it's fully transparent, right? There's no trying to act yeah. as if we're doing this all on our own. We say, hey, here's who we're working with. Awesome writer. She wants to interview you for this piece. Um, do you have time? And It's also understanding your role in the game, right? Because like, I feel like a lot of people feel, when, even when you do presentations and public speaking, right? A lot of people are obsessed about watermarking their material. Like nobody will grab a photo with their smartphone and just use it somewhere else, right? Like the moment you understand, if you feel like that's the only thing you're bringing to the table, if you, you, like those slides or those things that you created as, as, your, as, as your material, then you're really putting yourself in a tough position, right? You have to work in a way that even if people would reach out to your writers on their own or even if they would copy exactly what you've done with other brands, they would still see value in paying you to bring you in, right? Because you bring something different every time that cannot be put into like a recipe that you follow every time or, or, or a slide or something that you can just steal from them, right? right? And content is one of those things, right? Because it, it feels very easy to copy. It's like, okay, I'll just hire this guy for one month and then I'll just replicate exactly what he was doing and it doesn't really work like that. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, one of the, it's a joke that I make, but one of our competitors are new college grads because you know what companies do? They say, oh, content's easy to do. Let me just hire yeah. a new recent graduate to write our content. And then a year later, they realize that content's not doing anything. Yeah. And then that's when we come in and we're like, oh, we see what you did. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, it's a common mistake that, that hurts me and it, it, it wastes a lot of time and resources. And that, that person they hired might have been able to succeed at another role. But yeah. Uh, All right, man. The last pain of the day today is that you, I wanted to talk a lot about a little bit that you move into a new role, right? So you move from a marketing role into a product role. And we know that. So with the whole growth hacking movement, um, actually when we met, I was doing a talk at the time called Debullshitizing Growth, so it's still my mission to remove some of the bullshit out of it. Thank you. <laughs> this whole movement, uh, the full funnel ownership thing was like our obsession, right? Like I wanna control the full funnel and we learned very quickly that that was just getting you a team full of pissed out of people, right? Like people from sales, people from customer success that were like, all of a sudden this guy comes in and he wants to call the shots all around us. And it was just a really weird situation to be in. Today, we are hearing like maniacs about product-led growth, right? That's the new kid in the block that everybody wants to hang out with. So you see a lot of marketers talking about how, wow, now to really have an impact on growth, you have to be in product, right? Like now product is the thing. There's this constant back and forth about like, who has the growth lever, right? Who has the magic thing that just brings, when at the end of the day, it's, it's a multi-people 
cock machine, right? And and what everybody does contributes to that growth. It's just a childish nonsense idea that that if there's one person or one department that is going to bring this up. Um, what made you personally decide to move to product? Was it the the opportunity to have more impact? Was it an internal decision that 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 didn't go th directly through you, and then you decided that it would be good? What happened there? What was your idea? Yeah, I'm I'm glad you brought that up. Where growth. Growth is a team sport. It's not one person coming in and fixing everything. I mean, you guys are 2,000 um, people. Or, no, I don't even know how many people are in HubSpot right now. Well, 3,000. Over 3,000, definitely. Three, okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so we're quite big. And even, even for myself, most of the things that I do and what my team does require talking directly with marketing and making sure we're aligned, yeah. working with five other product management teams to make sure we're aligned and we don't break their part of the product. Um, as for why I moved into product, so I started marketing for about four years at HubSpot, got yeah. to learn a lot. And I really started moving into product because as a marketer, I saw that there were a lot of things I wanted to do that required working with product. And it just became a natural partnership. Yeah. And as I spoke to more product managers, I thought, wow, this, the frameworks they use to approach problems and solutions is very interesting and I'd like to learn more. And I, I realized it was a little bit different than the culture on a marketing team where it was more focused on that sounds like a cool idea or that sounds like that sounds interesting. Let's do it. Yeah. But for product, it was more of it's, it might be a great idea. It might be a really cool idea. But here's what I need to think about for the long the second order consequences of working on this or the resources that would need to maintain this if it if it works out or if it breaks. Here's yeah. here's how it affects my team and things like that. And as I started working more with them, it, I naturally sort of became a pseudo PM and was doing PM work without the title. And eventually there was an open role and I said, hey, I, I've already sort of been doing this job. I'd like to move into an official role and be even more closer to the product org and learn from other product managers. Yeah. And it, it just, it felt very natural. Um, granted, there were, there were a lot of habits I had to unlearn as a marketer, but it, it was all good. How is that adaptation process? I was going to ask, right? Because I, I think people make romantic ideas about functions in general, right? Like you feel like if you are, I don't know, a marketer, you'll be all day like, you know, having a cigar and thinking about cool billboards, right? You have these romantic ideas about everything. And I think with product management, what people don't realize is, is that part of the business that you were just mentioning, right? It, it, it needs to be highly structured because you're also dealing with engineering teams and you're dealing with other teams that you cannot just say, hey, let's just try this and see what happens. You, you, you need to really have a sound logic behind it because it involves so many other people. Um, how was the adaptation process? That, were there any like big pains you experienced like moving into this new role that just kind of hit you in the face? I mean, the first one was I kind of went in guns blazing and had all these ideas oh, that I wanted to do. <laughs> yeah, that's classic Which, marketer right for there. Anyone who knows that's the wrong way to do it. Yeah. And I, I had some trouble kind of getting ideas across because I was so focused on the idea and not, not the problem I was trying to solve, what, what the consequences or what the opportunity was and communicating that. So it was more of pulling myself back, starting from square one and helping communicate from square one what the opportunity was and how I got to this idea. And not just being married to the idea, but opening up the discussion to then come up with other solutions that may be more viable or better experiments to try out. Um, one of the things I've actually fallen into recently is, you know, sometimes I try to be a little too logical in terms of things to test out. Mm. I'm reading a book called Alchemy by Rory Sutherland. Oh, 
dude um, one of my absolute favorites of, of last of this year amazing yeah. book if, amazing if and when i write a book i would like the tone to be just like it's funny it's informative it it's entertaining a great book it is a great and book. yeah it, it just forces us to think you know we try to be too logical sometimes but most human decisions are not rational in in the basic sense it's it's rational in the sense of it's emotional and there's some reasoning to it which may not make logical sense but it makes sense as a human being and well, that's something i'm pushing myself to think more about too it's super important i i think i i touch upon this with rand on the last episode right so i uh, so i don't want to really like dwell into it too deep but we had this complete obsession about like measurability and technical things uh and we we kind of forgot about the essential things that we all do like people just buy products extremely emotionally and irrationally right yeah. they don't they don't make these decisions being like okay how many contacts can i add with hubspot okay like yeah sure that comes later right like when you're like implementing or whatever initially it's that tiny little cartoon or that advertising or whatever that just like oh I'll check yeah. these guys out. It, we're that simple, right? We 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 yeah. want to see ourselves as, as like these geniuses, but we're that idiotic, right? We go down a window and it says sale, and we're like, "Oh, sale! I don't need that shit, but I'm just gonna buy it because it's on sale." That yeah. still works, you know. Even, even as a marketer or growth or product manager, whatever you want to call me, that stuff works on me. I know exactly what they're doing, but I'm gonna buy that thing that's 30% off Dude. because I may not get this opportunity again. I'm surrounded by things that I look around and I was like, I really didn't need that shit, right? But, but you were like, oh, cool page, nice. And then you were like, you ended up buying it, right? Yeah. Like so many things. And I feel like especially in B2B, we tend to forget about these very basic notions, right? So that's, that's what that book does really well. Because one of the problems that that book suggests as well, to not dwell on it for too long, is, is how people avoid risk. So it's way less yeah. risk for, risky for me to go in a meeting with executives and promote something really complex in a spreadsheet because everybody will be like, wow, that's really a sound plan. If I come in and suggest a silly, wacky, but really emotional idea, then people are gonna be like, did we hire this guy for this? Right, like this that's, it, anybody could have come up with that. Yeah. But that, the best marketing, it's that simple, yeah. right? And I mean, that's, that goes into a whole nother conversation of yeah. complexity sells, simplicity doesn't, unfortunately, you make something you Even make internally. a financial model that's yeah. super complex. It's like, wow, so much must have gone into this. Um, I can, I've, I've built my own financial models and I've compared to others thinking about the same thing. Yeah. They had multiples more inputs than I did, but we still got to the same numbers, which was fascinating to me, which you know, it, it removes that magic from it. It's more of, hey, this is, this is just guessing. Um, yeah. Yeah. Which there's nothing wrong with. I feel I feel we need to, to yeah. feel a bit more comfortable with doing the guesswork because it, it drives business, right? Like, sure, it, it sounds awful to a CFO and my CFO might want to kill me when I say things like this, but that's the way it works. I want to go to the very last bit. It's been going really quickly the time, uh, which is that we share a few resources, right? So uh, do you have something, you, you've shared a couple already during the conversation, but do you have something more to share about resources? Yeah, I mean, I'd say alchemy, by Rory Sutherland is yeah. a, a great book that I recommend for folks who who may be similar to us and feel like there's always more to do. There's a really good book called The Effective Executive that has Drucker. been really impactful in how I think about my time and how I approach work. Um, those are the top ones that come to mind. Uh, yeah. But if, if anyone wants to chat, um, I'm happy to, to chat if, if you want to share you know, my website and they can get in touch there. 
Also, you're putting out a LinkedIn post recently about people joining your beta for your course. So if anybody yes. wants to check that out, if you want to send me a link, I can put it in the description of the video and so on, but, uh, or your email or whatever works. Um, so people check it out. I definitely want to check it out myself. Um, to wrap up a little bit, uh, my resources, I, there's this really good TED talk. It's a, it's, I think it's from 2017, but it's, it's really good. I'm not sure. It might be older. From Mike Cannon-Brooks, the co-founder and co-CEO of Atlassian. That's called uh, How You Can Use Imposter Syndrome to Benefit, to Your Benefit. It's really, really good. It's really, it's really nice to, he basically talks about what we were talking about at the beginning of this talk, right? That the most successful people, most of the day feel like morons, right? Like you feel completely over your head. You feel like you don't know what you're doing. You convey something different to the, to the people around you, right? Because it's your position, but that, that's normal. So that's really good. And the other one, which is also an old but a goodie, it's Radical Candor by Kim Scott. I think it it's applies to what we were talking now about how to manage that, um, that honesty when you're talking to your teams, which is, believe me, like I, I feel like I fuck it up all the time. I, don't, I cannot get that one right, but I, I'm working on that. Yeah, thanks, man. Thanks for joining me. It's been really cool to have you. Uh, hopefully we'll see each other when you are able to travel around the globe as well to, to go in conferences. But it's been, uh, it's been really cool to have you. Thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks again for having me. Okay, guys. See you to the next one. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.